This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, Piper is going to buy you some fuel. And airplane owners, stay tuned. There are a bunch of ADs you want to know about. Some moves in the e-market. Buy is getting some money and maybe a new airplane. The big news this week was a cyber attack that toppled Garmin Pilot's app temporarily. All right, David, you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk again. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, contact. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week, a phenomenal woman, just an incredible story. You were really lucky to meet up with her and chat with her, Jessica Cox. Yeah, we caught up with Jessica Cox and her husband, Patrick Chamberlain. Now, Jessica Cox might come to your mind because she has a unique spot in aviation history as an armless pilot, and Jessica flies an air coupe. Ian, she was here to help celebrate the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disability Act, and she's a phenomenal person. It's a great interview. Folks are really going to be interested in her story. Okay, cool. Fantastic. So we'll get to that and we'll, we'll get to the free gas here from Piper in a second. But first, we have to toot our own horn a little bit. So David, congratulations. Congratulations to you too, Ian. Yeah. So uh, Hangar Talk, and thanks to everybody who's been listening, is the gold winner for Association Media and Publishing their annual awards in the podcast section. Yeah, we were psyched to, to hear about that. And Ian, you know, we've been doing the Hangar Talk podcast. This is really starting our fifth season. You and I started out in a little a little room over back across the way. I remember that you brought in a dog pillow that I leaned against. You <laughs> That's know. right, one of, one of our many dog beds from home. <laughs> yeah, because we were trying to sound dead in the room uh, and everything. Yeah, yeah. It was pretty funny, but we had a great time. And, you know, we just started out chatting a little bit. And uh, you're a great resource because you're a CFI, you know, and you're a helicopter pilot. And I guess I bring a little bit to the table, you know, from uh, past days as as an airplane owner. Yeah, man, but absolutely. Man, yeah, I was so impressed. We won a gold in the XL Awards. This is fantastic news. Yeah, yeah. So thanks everybody for listening. And yeah, maybe next year we'll do it. We'll do a two peat. We'll start our Patriots dynasty. <laughs> I like it. Well, now before <laughs> we leave that, we should also toot our own horn. Other uh, AOPA colleagues 
also made a grand showing in the uh, XL Awards. Our folks from ASI won several bronzes. We also had our flight training magazine come back with a, with a gold and also a bronze uh, in the video category. So, you know, we're all doing really good stuff here, and we're just glad to represent GA. Yeah, amen. Hey, all right, so free fuel. So there is a catch. So Piper, like we said, is going to offer three years, actually, of fuel, maintenance, training, inspections, and all consumables. So I should say it's more than fuel. It's all of these things. There's a big hook, though. Well, you, first you got to buy the airplane. Yeah. It's an it's a M350. It's yeah. 1.195 million. And you better do it pretty darn quick, by gosh, because it's a, uh, it's, Basically, you can get free consumables for every 350 sold, but you have to get one by September 30th. Yeah, so the M350, it's what used to be. Well, it was the Malibu, and then it was the Malibu Matrix, and so now it's just the 350, and that's, the, of course, the piston version of that sort of cabin-class Piper, the, the M-class, as they call them. So I was curious because, you know, I saw this story, and I thought, okay, boy, if I didn't have to pay for fuel or maintenance, and I mean, you're talking big bills on this thing. I was like, what? Really, what am I looking at? So I went to the finance calculator on, on AOPA, and 1.2 million, they're going to require a pretty massive down payment. So first, I got to come up with 180 grand. So you know, I don't know about that. That that cuts me out right there. But on a monthly payment standpoint, you're looking at like you know six to seven grand a month, and that's all in. So you know, for an airplane like that, that's a that's a really good deal, I think. Well, that could be, especially if you're going to maybe. I don't know, is that for personal use or can you put it on the flight line or can you lease it yeah, out to someone? I mean, there might be some options there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And don't forget, this also covers some of the light maintenance, like oil changes, for instance. And and they're going to ballpark the, the fuel, basically. The fuel they use is the estimate on the amount of hours flown based on past experience. So it's not like you have to sit there with a with a fuel card and and watch the numbers go by. I think that's a pretty pretty cool program. So that means that like if I want to do a flight around the world, they're not going to pay for that. Is that what they're saying? Well, now it's based on past experience, Ian, quote okay. unquote. <laughs> so uh, you know, so the I'll annual hours I'm, now. Yeah, I'm a big traveler. <laughs> yeah, you would. <laughs> I think that's a great idea. We should ask Piper if they'll yeah. cover that. Ian, you yeah. got plans? Uh, no, but I could make them. I mean, if, but for, like <laughs> I said, first I got to come up with 180 grand. So, <laughs> I like your research. It's seven or eight thousand bucks a month. That's, yeah. that's really that could be that could be doable. I like it. Yeah. So yeah, get in there, Piper M350, great airplane, and yeah, you can get get a little break for the next couple of years. All right, so we're going to go through now a slew of airworthiness directives. There's been a lot, and we've sort of been compiling these over time. A lot going on. I think the FAA, it must be, you know, they must be working from home and like plowing through back paperwork or something. Let's start with the PA-28. This is one that we have talked about. This is the SPAR issue. You know, it was the, uh, the arrow that crashed in Florida a couple of years ago. This really massive SPAR AD that they've put out, and they keep modifying it. And AOPA is saying, well, oh, it needs a little more work. Well, and the reason for that is, Ian, that when the AD really, when it came out to begin with, it encompassed just thousands and thousands of aircraft. And since then, it's been modified a few times. Mm-hmm. The, original, the original AD would have covered about 20,000 airplanes, so, you know, the PA-28 line. Mm-hmm. And it's a hugely popular aircraft line for, for training and also, you know, regular personal flying. And so that's been modified a couple of times and reduced. And we called about 8,800 airplanes from that list, but that still might not be enough. In other words, it should probably be a smaller field is what AOPA is saying. Yeah. And in fact, in the letter, we were saying, you know, the, the 28, PA-28-151, so, you know, the Cherokees and then the 181s, which is sometimes called the Archer. So they were saying, well, okay, they shouldn't have probably the sort of fatigue issues that some of these heavier, higher use airplanes have had. So we're looking to get more of these kind of off the list. And 
you know, I, I think when you look at ADs, a lot of people, you know, they might sort of question, it's like, well, what does AOPA do on a day-to-day basis? And a lot of the really the behind the scenes stuff with advocacy is this sort of thing. So, you know, I mean, if, if we're successful in getting some of these off and we have been already, you know, you're talking about thousands and thousands of dollars that we're saving individual owners here. And so it, it's, it's a big deal. That's true, Ian, and you bring up something else, which is how do you comply with this AD? Well, Mm. one thing is that we're looking at getting a specific eddy current inspection method involved, and I was telling people earlier that I had a Mooney that needed an eddy current inspection on a hard cell propeller because of an AD, Mm -hmm. and that's one thing, but now we're going to have to use an eddy current inspection for the spar. Now, spar, you have to take panels off to get to it. Yeah. The other thing about this is that unlike the original proposal, the revised AD would forbid replacing a wing spar with a used part. So that could be an issue. Yes. And if you're an aircraft owner, now you're thinking, well, wait a minute. Do I trash my airplane if I can't use a, another part, if it's not available? You know, I mean, or depending on how bad the corrosion is. Now, you don't want to fly an airplane with corrosion, clearly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and funny enough, so this next one, this 210, the Cessna 210, same kind of issue. It was, It's a spark corrosion issue. This one came about from an accident in Australia, and the FAA was requiring, this came in effect in March, requiring about 1,520 210s to be inspected. And one thing AOPA is saying in this is that a lot of the ones that have gone through this process in the States so far bear little resemblance to the airplane that crashed in Australia, which was apparently was modified. Heavily modified because they were doing a lot of uh, low-level flying and they were doing – they put a lot of stress on that airplane. Mm. Very few Cessna you know, owners that would have this, this type of airplane, Cessna 210 owners. I mean, that's a pretty high-flying airplane. It's a get-me-there airplane. Yeah. It's not you know, your normal – pipe patrol airplane yeah bumping around low altitude yeah right yeah. right and so i think that a lot of the stress that was involved in the, the australia crash aircraft absolutely would not have a parallel with other owners of, of this particular airplane mm, okay so yeah aopa working again to you know sort of modify a little bit the methods of compliance and that sort of thing so keep an eye out for that if you're a 210 owner finally moving on a couple of newer airplanes diamonds hit in two different ways here one is the ones with the austro engine those are the diesels that the diamond actually manufactures through their austro division i think there's some issues there with what is it some timing chains the timing chain and the fuel injectors and so you know the diamonds are relatively new aircrafty and the whole line is you know in, in the scheme of general aviation because the average age of a general aviation airplane is about 46 years old these are relatively new airplanes yeah and so if you're looking at the timing chain issue or you're looking at those fuel injectors, you know, the owners could expect an estimated cost of compliance of about 3100 bucks for a timing chain replacement mm. and about $3,000 to replace the fuel injector. So you're looking at 6000 bucks, which is not insignificant. Yeah, well, especially if it's because some of these affect DA62s and, you know, the 42s, the twins. And so you're looking at, you know, twice that. So interestingly, this is an AD that the FAA sort of adopted from EASA's regulation, which we understand was because Austro introduced life limits on some of the newer ones. And so basically, I think what they're doing is going back and saying, well, no, these should probably be life limited. So I don't think, at least the story doesn't mention any previous failures in those areas. So basically, it's just getting up to speed, putting everyone on the same page as far as we got limits on the timing chain, limits on the injectors. We got, you know, we got service limits that we just all need to get on the same page with. Yep, yep. And so the, another diamond model, really popular on DA40. This is the final one we're going to talk about. This is another new AD. 
This one dealing with some rubber fuel hoses. And now that we're looking at 737 Diamond DA-40 airplanes, and you do see those, you see the DA-40s at a lot of training environments. Mm-hmm. And it's also a good personal go-getter airplane to get me to somewhere because they're, they're pretty sleek and they're relatively fast. But you're looking at these, basically the, the fuel hoses, the rubber fuel hoses, basically leaving particles in the fuel tank. And so we Ooh. don't want that. No. So, They're coming apart. They're deteriorating a little bit. And so, of course, we're checking our fuel sumps every time as a normal pre-flight anyway. But this could be an issue. So there's an AD. Yeah. Interestingly, this one, so this one comes from Transport Canada initially. This one, and it just goes to show that you're talking about a part that it's, oh, man. So the the actual part, you know, I know owners are always concerned, you know, rubber fuel hose. They think, oh, this, you know, it's a rubber fuel hose. It should be $20. It's going to be $5,000. Well, this one, actually, the part is only $48. However, <laughs> to get it installed on in the airplane, yeah, 16 hours it takes to install this, which the FAA estimates is 1400 bucks. So, yeah, this is going to be a, again kind of a pricey one, but um, they're worried about fuel starvation, like you said, with fuel tanks. So, not something you want to mess around with. That's right. And you know, the first DA 40 trainer flew in the late 90s, so really they're about 20 years old. Yeah, that's true. Some of them, yeah, good point. So, hey, speaking of fuel being an issue on an airplane where it won't be an issue is the E-Flyer, the one from Bay Aerospace. Now, we've talked about this many times. We love the E-Flyer, really rooting for those guys. Good news from that front is they came up with a whole pile of money. They found a whole pile of money. They found a whole pile of money. They got two giant donations there, $5 million each. It's $10 million altogether. And I'm going to uh, wet the whistle of some some Hangar Talk listeners that you're going to have an interview with George Bai of Bai Aerospace in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. But basically, two investment deals came through, and it's going to help them basically build the conforming aircraft number one, the E-Flyer 2. Yep. Serial number 001. Yeah, so we did talk about that in the interview a little bit. Funny enough, and so yeah, we'll just give you a sneak peek. I asked George, okay, when are we going to see it? And he was a little non-committal, I would say, on the answer. And some of that could have been they were waiting for the, you know, for this round of funding to come in. Yeah. So now that they have it, they can kind of go full steam. And so this is good. This is really good news. I mean, you know, the fact that you get to a conforming prototype shows that the technology is working. It's mature. It's getting mature. Yeah. And, and and I know that they've been doing a number of uh, multiple test flights. They've been, you know, we, we hear about by aerospace every couple of you know weeks or so. And so it's pretty exciting stuff to see this technology move ahead. Now, you know, they're using the lithium sulfur batteries in that Mm -hmm. aircraft and that is not the lithium ion batteries that a lot of us are used to so the lithium sulfur batteries have a little bit better power to weight ratio yeah so the it's an interesting concept it'll get an airplane up in the air a little bit quicker you can fly a little bit further uh it might be some interesting technology yeah so yeah another one that's going to go down the road of at least exploring this lithium sulfur is colt now a lot of folks probably haven't heard of them texas aircraft but they're a new SLSA. We've written about them. They were in the magazine. They've been online. And so you had a story about how they're going into the e-world. So, Ian, we wrote about the Colt that burst itself out of the paddock with a 100-horsepower <laughs> Rotax you know, engine last year. It's really just 2019. And our own Sarah Diener flew that airplane, and she liked that airplane. It's a sporty airplane. It's mainly metal. And, and it's a, it's basically put together down in Texas. Now, the company's based in Brazil, mm-hmm. and it comes from, they come from a long line of aviators. So it's a really interesting airplane. It's a great airplane for the trainer market. The cost is about $170,000 for the Rotex version of this airplane. I don't know how much it's going to cost for the electric version. 
But Ian, again, we're looking at lithium sulfur technology, and this is an interesting technology that might have finally cracked that power-to-weight ratio secret formula. Yeah, because as you say in the story, they're quoted as saying that this lithium sulfur is about 40% lighter, you know, sort of energy pound for energy pound to the lithium ion. So that's significant. It is. And so as a trainer aircraft, you know, you have a couple of hours of flight here. You've got a range of 200 nautical miles, a flight time in excess of two hours. And really, Ian, I think when I was learning to fly, I spent a lot of time in the pattern. And I think, again, if there's a way to reduce that cost and learn how to fly an airplane and go ahead and recharge it in between flights, you know, that's going to get more people up in the air. So I totally see the allure of something like this. Now, will it get me from here to Asheville, North Carolina? I'm not sure. Yeah, you know, not yet. We, not yet. Yeah. But, you know, you look at cars, same thing, right? You know, when Tesla, well, not maybe not when Tesla, but when, when electric cars in general first came out, it's like they were sort of a, well, you could drive them around the neighborhood and they were good. You know, it's like nice sort of first level technology and really cool to have and early adopters got them. But it has not been long since it's been totally mainstreamed and, and you can have sort of a quote unquote normal life and normal habits with electric. So, yeah, it's pretty exciting. I like it. Well, let's move from that to something that was not so exciting for folks who were using the Garmin Pilot app and folks like myself who also use the Garmin Fitness app. You know, everything was offline for four days. This is a big deal, Ian. You know, we're talking about a cyber attack that occurred on July 23rd, and it really affected a lot of folks who are using that Garmin app. Yeah, yeah, this was, man, this was such a big deal that it got picked up, probably because of the fitness stuff, but, I mean, this was picked up in all the technology trades and everywhere else, so, yeah, this is this is bad news. Now, Garmin wouldn't confirm this, but the technology trades were reporting that it was essentially a ransomware attack, so these are the ones that... Probably somebody on the network downloaded an attachment that was bad, and it's like, boom, the whole system, it takes over, and it demands money to release your files. And I, and at least the technology press was, they were saying that it, Garmin, that the ransom was $10 million to release those files. That's a substantial sum. And listen, Ian, we don't know whether it was paid or not. We're assuming it was not paid. I mean, I don't know, because it could be a crime if it was. It depended on where the cyber attack came from. But we're looking at, uh, basically, the one thing to keep in mind is that folks who had Garmin GPSs in their airplane, they still worked. So let's stress that that still was, you were still able to fly. But if you're trying to use your EFB and a companion app, that did not work. So the convenience factor was was part of the deal. And folks like me who have a, a, a Garmin fitness app, I mean, I noticed late, you know, I noticed early on that there were some issues with it. And I think a lot of people use these, you know, on a daily basis now. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And it was out for a while. I mean, I think the attack was uh, the 23rd of July and they reported finally restoring on the 27th but not even then fully. It's like some of the stuff was still a little wonky. And one of the interesting things is, you know, so the, the data wasn't available either. So I guess if you were a new customer, you wouldn't have been able to, you know, update your GPS databases. Or if maybe you hadn't flown in a few months and you wanted to update your databases, you couldn't do it. But for the vast majority of people who keep their stuff updated all the time, 
I think it's like the hackers didn't really understand GPS navigation because it's in the middle of a cycle. Yeah, they didn't so, realize when it started and when it ended. So July 16th was the most recent update. So it skipped over that. Yeah. I mean, could you imagine if it was like if it happened the day of a cycle? I mean, oh, my gosh, that would have been unbelievable. Chaos. It's a good point. And, chaos. The, and then something that made it worse for Garmin was that their communications internally were offline, too. So they couldn't communicate with customers or the media, or basically anyone to get the word out. So it was like an information blackout. And that's a bad a bad deal for a company. But as we record this, it's all over and done with. Yeah, right? yep, yep. So just a, it's a just terrible story. And obviously, we don't want this to happen to anybody in the industry and for any number of reasons. So yeah, glad that they're sort of coming back from that and, and have overcome it, hopefully. So Hey, Jessica, I was super stoked when you said that you, you're going to get this interview and get a chance to talk to her. I think people are really going to enjoy hearing about her story. It's really phenomenal, phenomenal story. Welcome to Hangar Talk, Jessica Cox. Uh, we're talking to you here outside near AOPA headquarters. What's it like to be here at Frederick? Oh my, this has been such a wonderful experience for me. For one, I have never flown on the East Coast. So here we are in Maryland and I, it's one of those bucket list things you want to fly, you know, as many places as you can. So I'm excited. I got to meet the community here. They've embraced me. Uh, the 99s had me out for dinner. The AOPA has lent me this wonderful hangar to keep airplane in there. And uh, Signature Flight Services has helped me out. It's just been in Bravo Flight School. So I, I feel like I always come to a new family that I've never met before when I go to new places. And for folks who don't know your background, you have a very interesting background. And take us through your life. When you were a little child, um, tell us a little bit about some of the hurdles that you had to overcome. Well, it's pretty obvious that I don't have arms. And that was from birth. I was born this way and my parents to this day are not certain as to what caused it. I have a brother and a sister and they both have their arms so it was one of those fluke things that happens. But as a result I adapted my body adapted to using my feet for everyday things from eating, riding to turning a doorknob and now flying a plane with my feet. <laughs> And that is a trick. Now, you got your airplane uh, certificate. It was a light sports certificate, if I'm not mistaken, back in, was it 2008 or 2009? I got my light sport certificate in 2008. And how long had you been taking lessons? And for me, I started in 2005 as a brand new pilot. Never even had the opportunity to go up in a small airplane until my first flight lesson. And it took me three years, three flight instructors, three different states, Florida, California, and then Arizona, and numerous hours to become certified as a sport pilot. So a lot of us have struggles with, with certain things when we're learning to fly. You hit plateaus uh, about landing and, and, and some, get scared about cross countries and night flying. Now you had all that to deal with. And a physical challenge too, how did you overcome that? And first, first of all, Tell people how you get in the air coop and fasten the shoulder belts, things like that. Well, those things, the physical challenges of fastening like the seat belt, the four point harness, which I started with, 
it was just a matter of buckling the seatbelt while I was standing on the seat and then sliding my body into the harness and tightening it from there. But you're right, there were all those other challenges aside from the physical challenges of doing that without arms, the challenges of that plateau when you're learning how to land. I experienced that. It was like I really wasn't, uh, I was terrified of landing initially. And then I had that plateau during my training where I was just not getting it or I kept messing up. So I finally went through that and uh, figured out what I needed to do after hour, hour after hour of training. Was there one thing that was really hanging you up on the landings that you can pinpoint? Well, one of the landing challenges I had to overcome is I had to have access to that throttle. If you can imagine with my feet on the controls, so my feet are elevated and I don't have anything to ground me while I'm sitting in the seat. And of course, you know, you want something to ground you. So I did have a good harness on that kept me in my seat pretty tight, but I needed to figure out a way that I didn't have to use the throttle as much as probably the average student who learns to use their hands on the throttle and the yoke. So one of the things my instructor had me do is he said, just have a little higher airspeed than average so that I had room for air. Gotcha. So is it right foot on the controls, left foot on the throttle, or is it the other way around? There you go. I have to have my right foot on the throttle, right foot on the yoke, left foot on the throttle, because there's not enough room to push the seat back. The seat is locked in place, so my feet can't directly go straight out in front of me. So you're sitting cross-legged? Cross-legged. Gotcha. Now, uh, let's go back before aviation, uh, before getting your, your, your certificate, shall we say, what drew you to aviation in the first place? Well, before getting my certificate, I was always afraid of flying. This is something that was with me since I was three years old when I first went on a flight. I was just terrified of flying commercial commercially, so I thought flying in a small plane would be the same thing. And I thought, well, what better way to overcome a fear than to go ahead and pursue a pilot certificate? Well, what did your parents think of that? I think my mom was a little hesitant. She's like, do you really want to fly? Because, you know, moms are protective. And she was protective of me like any mom would be. And so she was just like, well, if you want to do it, though, go ahead and do it. And my dad was a big fan of aviation. He has always loved flying. He's not a pilot. He's never flown planes. but. He loved it so much that he was almost like uh, living through me, vicariously living through me, because he loved flying so much. Talk about the feeling you had when you had your first solo. Well, my first solo, I can remember it like it was yesterday, like most of us pilots can. It's just so incredible that moment your instructor gets out and you take that plane around and you're like, wow, I did it. It's a celebration when you land that plane and you, you just, you really know for a fact you did it by yourself. And it's the ultimate form of just empowerment, I think. What, think about that feeling just for a minute and you know, close your eyes and think about it. You know, overall, I mean, we know about the, being ecstatic and all, but what did that mean to you as a person? For me, it meant it was something I really worked hard at. And to finally see it come together and that I was able to succeed at soloing an airplane without anyone's help. It was so moving for me. I mean, I had a smile on my face the moment I got out of that plane, and I kept that smile on my face for the rest of the day. No one could take that away from me. And a few years later, you still had that smile. Yes, flying this plane always makes you smile. <laughs> well, that goes to another question I want to ask you about. Um, I know you're an inspirational speaker, mm -hmm. and you've actually been at the AOPA. They used to call it the summit back then. You were a guest there, and also the Women in Aviation International. You were honored there. 
you are an inspiration to a lot of young people. What can you tell them about perseverance? Well, I always say, for me, why I wanted to become a pilot was to overcome my fear. And I just want to tell young people to be fearless, to never give up, and to uh, really work hard for those goals because it's not going to be easy. But once you do achieve it, it makes the process, it makes the journey all the more meaningful. My motivational message, it varies and it depends on who needs to hear it because I like to tell people that they can accomplish their own impossible by thinking outside the shoe. And I basically, what I mean by that is I had to learn how to tie my shoes from the outside because my toes would tie the laces and I'd slip my feet in. But it's just about how you think about it, just finding a way, insisting on never giving up and being fearless. So through desire, persistence and fearlessness. So thinking outside the shoe, and that is one of the handles on your emails when you send emails back and forth. Yes, it is. It reminds people. Yes, it does. What's it feel like to fly an airplane? I always say it's this greatest feeling of freedom, empowerment, and independence. And it's a lot. It's, it's, a, it's a lot on me to fly a plane. Uh, emotionally, because of that former fear. Physically, because my whole body is moving to fly this plane. But it is so incredibly empowering and it gives me that accountability that I'm, you know, that I can be a responsible pilot. I can literally be up there in the sky with my life between my two feet. <laughs> That's pretty yeah, cool. Hold, basically, like they say, you know, you hold your life, what is the saying? Hold your life in your hands. Um, holding life in your hands, I'm holding my life in my two feet. I like it, I love your attitude. Now you went to college, you graduated. Tell me a little about where you went to school and what your degree is in. I went to college for a Bachelor of Science in Psychology and I had a minor in Communication with the pursuit of becoming a motivational speaker. So I needed to definitely get out there and speak and turn it into a speaking business so I could earn an income to speak and go places and share my story and also coach people. Let's share your website now with people who might not be able to tune in to the, the live TV broadcast because we're doing a, a, a hangar talk audio as well as a TV broadcast. What is your website? My website is jessicacox.com. Pretty simple. Now you also have a documentary movie that's made about you and folks can get it on Amazon. How can they find it? Tell us the name. The movie about my life, it's a documentary called Right Footed and you can go on Amazon Prime, anyone can watch it for free. So if you have Amazon Pr Prime, you can watch it. And speaking of watching it, other people have watched you around the world. I think at last count, you'd been to over 20 countries. How many countries have you been to exactly as a motivational speaker? I have been to 27 countries as a motivational speaker. And what do people say about that? How does that impact them? Well, what really moves people is the connection with aviation. And that's why I think it's almost worked hand in hand or foot in foot, the whole aviation pursuit, overcoming fear and becoming the first pilot to fly a plane with her feet. Doing all that has really helped me to get the message out there of uh, helping others to achieve their own impossible dreams. Now, the first woman to fly with their feet, does that give you an entry to the Guinness Book of World Records? Yes, I need to probably correct what the Guinness Medal is. The Guinness World Record Medal states that I'm the first armless woman pilot to fly an airplane with her feet. It's interesting how it's armless woman pilot. You, know, you don't think of yourself as, as, as you think of yourself as a pilot, is yes. my understanding. Mm -hmm. Okay, and let, let the other things fall where they may. <laughs> right. Now, now um, folks who are listening to this and might not be able to see it, 
don't see Patrick in the background. He, he, he's basically your first officer, and, and he told me a little while ago that he is also taking flight lessons. What does it mean to have someone th like that you know, in, in your posse? It is amazing to see how much he loves flying. I mean, it's wonderful when your spouse also loves flying because then you'll be doing more of it, right? When you both enjoy something and have that shared love for aviation. And it's amazing to watch him as he's learning because it brings me through my memories of training and, and uh, this is something we can share together as a couple. So it's very special to have that. Speaking of special and couples, how'd y'all meet? We met through Taekwondo. So we're both uh, Taekwondo black belts. And when did you get your black belt? I earned my first black belt when I was 10, and that was through the International Taekwondo Federation. And then I went on to college, and now I have a fourth degree black belt in Taekwondo. Wow. In the American I, Taekwondo Association. I am not gonna get you mad at me, I don't think. I'm gonna try not to. <laughs> You'll whip my butt. Now, when you were young, you were 10, 11 years old, now you had prosthetic arms back then, yes. right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And why did you decide to, to ditch that and just, just go all natural? Well. Prosthetic arms were introduced to me at the age of three, and by that age, you have already learned how to adapt to your, in your world. I mean, I have a three-year-old niece. I know how she does things. She acts like she's 30. But at that age, you already know how to do things. And for me, I never connected with them. They're as foreign for me as it would be for someone to have an extra set of arms. So using them, all the body maneuvering that I needed to do to move them, to open the hooks, to be able to pull the elbow up, all that took more body more of a workout than it would to just use my feet to do the same thing. I would imagine you'd be pretty tuckered out trying to get, get all the apparatus on and, and yes. just at some point say, oh, the heck with that. Yeah, it was good to have the option. I understand they came from good intentions. They wanted me to always uh, know that I had that option of prosthetics, but I just, I'm just better with my toes and feet. Great, and you're an excellent speaker, sir. Your communication background comes through loud and clear. Tell us a little bit about your plans this weekend. You're here in Frederick, Maryland, home of AOPA, and you have a special guest that you're gonna fly around tomorrow if the weather cooperates. Tell us who the guest is, and then we'll get into why you're doing that. So the special guest coming in tomorrow from about an hour away is former Senator Harkin. And former Senator Tom Harkin is a pilot. He was instrumental in the Americans with Disabilities Act in 1990. He was the lead sponsor of the Americans with Disabilities Act because his brother is also deaf, so he has this connection to disability, and he uh, used sign language to present it to the Senate in 1990, which is pretty impressive. I didn't know that. So we're coming up on the 30th anniversary of that bill. Yes. And then you have some special plans also that incorporate the air coop with another anniversary. Tell us a little bit about that. So tomorrow I'll be flying Senator Harkin around uh, this airport and then the next day College Park where the air coupe was first manufactured in the 1940s is going to host at their museum just a little welcome for me to fly in with the air coupe to celebrate the 80th anniversary of the air coupe. And for folks who are going to catch this a little bit later, you know, EAA AirVenture was canceled this year because of the coronavirus. There was going to be a gaggle of air coops flying in to help celebrate the 80th anniversary. So this is one way to help celebrate that. That's true. And College Park, Maryland, the home of the air coop, from where we are, it's only like, what, 50 miles away, something like that. So hop, skip, and a jump. But the airspace is complicated. Yes. So tell me a little bit about what you had to do to prepare to fly into 
We call it one of the DC-3 airports. So to fly into College Park, you have to have a pin. And in order to register and get that pin, I had to go in to get, I should call it toe prints. Because most people would get fingerprints. Yes. Okay, so I made a, <laughs> so an exception. They made an exception and the toe prints registered as sufficient. So I went in to get the toe prints and they processed everything and I got the permission and I got the pin. So now I have the permission to fly in. And for folks who are not familiar with the Washington DC special airspace, it's a, a pin is a personal identification number, yes. not a pin that you write with or a lapel pin. But it's, and it's a heavily guarded number that you are not supposed to tell to anybody and you actually have to call on a, on a phone line and give it to someone. It's not like you can trade a message with folks and so you have to alert the personnel before you fly into that area. Yep. And I know that you also are gonna have some backup on the radios for that. Now, how hard is it to deal with, getting back to flying a little bit, how hard is it to deal with the communication on the radios while you're flying with your foot coordination on the controls? I mean, how do you do that? I know it's, it's sometimes hard for me to even communicate because it's just so part of my flow and how I do things. But when I'm flying and I, I have my right foot on the yoke, left foot on the throttle, I will for just a few minutes use my left knee to wrap around the back of the yoke so I'm maintaining control of that yoke mm -hmm. and freeing up my right foot to type in uh, whatever it is the frequency is to do anything with whatever. Now I know I'm going to have to do something with the transponder. So all these other extra things I'll be doing by um, keeping my left foot in contact with left knee in contact with the yoke as I'm using my right foot to dial everything else in. Tell us a little bit more about the ADA and um, what that means to other people. It's the 30th anniversary, so yes. this is a big deal. This is a big deal and the ADA is instrumental in helping other people with disabilities. It helped me when I was a young girl. I was a first grader when the ADA went into effect. And so I started noticing things as a young person in a public school that were done to make it easier for me, more accommodating for my needs. Like for example, the doorknobs. The doorknobs in the school were turned from round doorknobs into lever doorknobs so that I can get in and out of rooms or if there was a fire alarm, I can get out if I had to. Um, a couple things, a special desk was made for me so that it made writing easier so I could take notes and write with my feet at a slant as opposed to that flat desk that most other students used. Um, and then there was a restroom that was accommodated for me as well. So these, those small things to make sure that I could be successful in school were implemented when I was a young person. And I was able to see how those measures help other people with disabilities become successful, whether it's a ramp or whether it's something for someone who is hearing impaired or visually impaired to be able to help them to be successful and, and really just get the message across that disability doesn't mean inability. We just have a few accommodations and we could be just as successful as anyone else. Or more successful in this case. What can the average person do to help out with ADA awareness? Awareness is important. I think that everyone can do something, whether that's standing up for someone who may have a disability and may not be able to be as vocal about their needs just saying, you know, keeping a lookout for is a building accommodating for someone. And if someone who's struggling with, who has a disability, asking them, can I help you? Or just being aware that, that, that a majority, I mean, one in five people will have a disability at some point in their lifetime. So that's a lot of people. We all know someone, right? 
That's right. That's a good point to keep in mind. And, and businesses, not just schools, but businesses could keep this in mind. And even on the residential front, you know, in, in home ownership and folks who are building houses or, or trying to sell one. Mm -hmm. Now, what's the future look like for you? Give us a little crystal ball into the future. I think that the ideal future for so many people with different abilities is to implement universal design so that we can all be accommodating, uh, you know, to our every everyone's needs and we all benefit from it. Because how many times people use that button that opens the door and they may not be in a wheelchair, but they have their hands full with groceries or something and they need to get through a door, they can just press a button and the door opens, so. So universal design, Basically, engineers need to embrace this yes. and think about that in every facet of what we do. Exactly. One good example of that might be, you know, having Siri on a phone yes. where you can talk instead of punch. Voice activation is, I don't ever go back to regular text messaging with my toes. I just use voice activation and it saves so much time. So that's one example and, and there are many examples that we can have and many yet to be discovered or designed. Exactly, yes. Looking back in that crystal ball, what's the future look like for Jessica? I feel like this has been an incredible year ever since I got this air coupe. I mean, Tim Tree called me up in August of last year and said, I want you to have my air coupe. And we have done this whole trip in less than a year. Traveled, you know, the 23.1 hours to fly this air coupe here. Now flying the Senator to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act and the 80th anniversary of the airplane. So there's so many things to do with this airplane. I see so many opportunities. Maybe I need to plan out another route across the country and cover the northern states. Oh, I definitely think you do need to do that. Tell folks a little bit about the background of the AirCoupe. I'm a former AirCoupe owner, so I know the joys of having an AirCoupe and lowering those side windows and flying around like you're in a convertible, that kind of thing. It's about a hundred you know, mile per hour airplane yes. on a good day, but it's a real friendly airplane to fly and, and excellent in a honking crosswind. Yeah. It really makes you look like a pro. So tell us a little bit about the AirCoupe. It's a unique design. It's got the, the twin rudders in the back. Yes. But what's one question that people ask you about an air coop? Well, the air coop, people are like, how does it handle the crosswind? And it can handle 20 knots of crosswind. You crab it into the wind as you're coming in on final, and then you touch down, and it will automatically straighten out for you. So that's a unique thing. Even though it doesn't have rudder pedals, you can still handle a crosswind. And that's what people used to ask me. They would say, hey, does your airplane have rudders? Well, it's got rudders. They meant, does it have rudder pedals? Exactly. Now, your airplane has an interconnected yoke that's connected to the ailerons and the rudder, so you don't need rudder pedals. Yes. So does that help you when you fly? I think it simplifies it for me when flying. Obviously, because I have two limbs, I need this design. That's what my certificate reads, an air coupe without rudder pedals. It is almost like a wonderful gift to have this type of airplane out there, something built in the 40s that is accessible for me. I think and it's just wonderful. For folks who don't know, it's a side-by-side -side, uh, aircraft. We were talking yeah, about 1,320 pounds. You now we're talking about the gross weight and how much fuel we have, which is what? how many gallons? 24 gallons, six in the header, nine on each wing. There you go. And so, and it's a very manual airplane. So, so it's an easy to fly airplane. It's kind of friendly. Yes. It even looks friendly. It's got a friendly nose on it. Yeah, it's a friendly plane. So speaking of friendly planes and, and you're friendly yourself now, do you think that you might have another friendly tour next year? You just were almost fixing to reveal it to us. I know, a tour for next year. Yes, we're gonna try and make our way across California to go, cover some Northern states. Cause this trip on our way back, we're gonna go all through the Southern route and you know, the deep South, 
My father's originally from the Deep South, so we're going to go through the Deep South because that just worked out. We'll be flying through First Flight, so we're going to stop in North Carolina at First Flight where the Wright brothers first flew. I've never been there, so I'm excited to see that. Yeah. And then we're going to fly it all the way to Tucson. And Tucson is your home. Yes. Talk a little bit more about this uh, yellow and white air coop with the checkerboard design on it. Now that came together with basically a, a pretty good group effort, a grassroots effort, if you will, through the Air Coopers community and an individual in particular. And, and there's also a foundation involved. So tell us a little bit about how all this came together. So Tim Tree called me up after I had called him just a week before and I asked him a couple details about his air coop that was up for sale on Barnstormers. And I told him a little bit about myself. He'd heard my story. He was under the assumption that I had already had my own air coop for all, you know, this past 10 years. But I told him, no, I was actually looking for an air coop for a club that I'm a part of. And he said, well, okay. And the next week he calls me up and says, I can't ask you to pay for this air coop. I thought you had one all along, but I want to give you this air coop. And so I had to figure out how to own an airplane in such short timing. And it was the most incredible gift. And I think he knew what, why I needed it. I needed it to help share the message of my foundation. And so he donated it to my foundation that helps people with disabilities. It's called Right Footed Foundation International. And that is what we're going to do here on out is use this airplane to further the mission of Right Footed Foundation International to help more people with disabilities, to empower them, to inspire them through aviation, and to get the word out there that disability doesn't mean inability. Okay, so the Right Footed Foundation is another organization that you work closely with. That's what the AirCoop is tied to. And can people donate to that foundation? Yes, if anyone wants to help us because, you know, owning an airplane for a foundation, there are a lot of expenses and some of the programs we want to do to help other people with disabilities, we, we do need supporters, we need our sponsors, we appreciate our sponsors. So if you want to find out more, you can go to rightfootedfoundation.com and you can find out more about what we're doing, you can find out ways in which you can be a part of it and if you can help us in some capacity financially, it would help us do so much more for people with disabilities. Well, I'm going to put you on the spot real quick because that's what I do all the time. Think about the next generation real quick. Do you have any plans for any kind of a scholarship, like a Women in Aviation Scholarship or a 99? Because both of those organizations were very helpful to you. There are so many ways in which we can help people with disabilities now that we have uh, the air coop and we can even lend it out to someone who has a disability and say they're paralyzed. The airplane is a perfect fit because it doesn't have the rudder pedals. They can just use their hands on the controls and have a si simple modification for the single foot brake. And so it's going to work in so many ways. We would love to work towards a scholarship in aviation and see where that takes us and, and see how we can empower more people. Tell people again how they could find you, Jessica. So if anyone wants to find me, find out about some of the cross-country flights or about this air coupe, jessicacox.com. And especially if they need a motivational speaker as well for boys and girls groups or youth groups, college groups, even professionals. Yes, everyone needs a little pick-me-up and motivation, encouragement, something inspiring, you know, once in a while. And if you see a way to want to connect with me for a speech, for coaching, for my motivational book, just go to JessicaCox.com. And they can catch you on the big screen too at? Look out for Right Footed on Amazon Prime. Excellent. We appreciate you being with us today. Thanks again. Thank you.
All right, David. So, you know, I think every pilot feels like they've overcome stuff in training and, you know, it's like initial hurdles. But when you look at what she had to overcome and what she learned to do, it's like, you know, learning to interpret regulations seems it pales in comparison to what she had to do. It is so cool what Jessica Cox has done. You know, she flies two-footed. She signs her emails right-footed, which is pretty cool. So she she controls, she, she sits cross-legged. She explained in the interview, she sits cross-legged. She controls the throttle with her toes, uh, with her, her left toes, and the yoke with her with her right. Now, I'm a former AirCoupe owner. So fortunately, with the AirCoupe, you have an interconnected aileron and rudders. So at least that that's one less thing that she has to deal with. But man, what an inspiration to anyone. If anyone has a learning block or feels like they're not going to, you know, pursue their flight training, I just want them to remember what Jessica Cox did. Yes, absolutely. Incredible stuff. Hey, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tillis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk. You know, we're also on iTunes and Spotify, and we want you all to call and email in and give us some new topics to talk about and help us get another gold medal XL award. (laughs) All right. We'll see you next time. See you. Hanger Talk from AOPA, your freedom to fly.